0: Hello, everybody. It's time for another episode of DLN Extend, episode number 21. We'll take a look at the recent events on the Destination Linux network, including shows, creators, and the community, and extend the discussion. I'm Nate, a Linux fitness and vintage tech enthusiast with an almost unhealthy obsession with the OpenSUSE project.
1: And I'm Eric. So, Nate, what have you been up to this week?
0: Well, it's been a busy week, getting a lot of uh, springtime projects rolling. And a big part of that has been using Fusion 360 on OpenSUSE, designing a rollout pantry to make my kitchen more efficient. Love it. So it's a, it, it's yeah, it's it's uh, it's pretty exciting, and I can even make it look pretty. I, I think I sent you some pictures that has the wood grain on it and everything, the design process on it, it's not exactly what I'm used to doing with my, uh, you know, for my regular job, but it's close enough. Some things are a little bit reversed, but it's close enough to get what I need done.
1: Do you get the sense sometimes that just to be contrary, that they design software <laughs> to to just be different because I, I don't know I've found that so many times in competitive products. And actually, funny enough, certain programs like uh, DaVinci Resolve comes to mind. When you start, it'll actually ask you which keyboard shortcuts are you familiar with, and actually let you switch the templates.
0: <laughs> you know what's what's funny though about using Fusion three hundred and sixty uh, compared to Creo. Certain things are just exactly the opposite, like the pan and zoom, literally pan, zoom and rotate. They're all the exactly the opposite of what it is on Creo. And so I'm constantly getting tripped up doing that. And I could, I think I could change those controls so that I can unify my, my interface. But I, I decided I'm just going to use it like it is. So you know, if someone else asks me about using Fusion 360, I'll know how to how to do that. Which made me laugh and and I I shouted and called myself a hypocrite because, you know, when it comes to desktop interfaces, I don't want to change how I use a desktop to get my work done, but I'll do it for (laughs) uh, a CAD application. And and I don't understand my problem. (laughs) Yeah. Like, why is it okay here? Not okay here? I don't know. The duality of man. I think that that's the real reason.
1: Something like that. So beyond the the little sort of annoyances, uh, you seem to have been able to come up with something pretty interesting.
0: Yeah, so I, I'm, I actually decided I would, I'm would i taking this entire project from design to actually constructing it. I will be making a video out of that. When I'll actually publish it, I'm not sure, but I am going to make a video out of it. So I've recorded the, the design process, and I want to start to record the, the process of actually doing the drawing. And then that's when I found out that Fusion 360... Doing drawings in Linux uh, is rather broken, so Uh-oh. uh oh, I I've got to work around. Yeah, I'm gonna uh, I'm actually gonna import it to FreeCAD and then do the do the 2D drawings there, you know, just just to lay it out. And I I would use FreeCAD for everything, but the issue is there's c- certain of the uh, parametric constraints don't seem to don't seem to hold up. So if I change a dimension of something early in the tree, the model tree. It will cause everything else to break. You know, further on, and Fusion 360 seems to be more tolerant to to such things, and also Fusion 360 is closer to what I'm used to. And it, it, there's a lot of thing, a lot of little things that it does. Now that doesn't mean I don't, you know, I'm not still trying to use FreeCAD, but just for me personally, it's just not quite, I'm not quite able to do what I what I want to do and as quickly. And I, and I think we talked about this before, but it's so easy. Fusion 360 is so easy to use, the the different features on it, that. From not watching a single video on how to use it, just by the way the buttons are laid out and, and how the tools work and the little and little like uh, little menus and such, I was able to design uh, something, you know, which which would have probably taken me taken me maybe an you know half an hour to do in Creo, which is what I use every day. It took me about forty five minutes to do in Fusion three sixty. And that's learning everything. Maybe an hour. But yeah, so so that's how easy it was. And that actually it took me Many hours and not actually completing it in FreeCAD. Not to say, you know, just it's just how it didn't didn't quite work with me. Essentially, is the problem. Yeah. Well,
1: and I thought you were going to say like many hours in uh, forty-five minutes or, or maybe an hour, and a lot of that is just the adjustment. So I'm I, I'm assuming that future projects you would be probably a little more um, efficient or at least know your way around. But that's great that it was intuitive enough that you were able to just get in there and. Start doing what what you do. That's that's I think that's the right. the mark of a well designed piece of software.
0: Yeah, I agree. Something that just intuitively makes sense. And actually, Creo does not intuitively make sense. Like if you jump into that one, that one's pretty convoluted actually. But once you understand how it works and how to pull the switches and flip the triggers, it's very quick to use. And and how they do things, it's it's a very quick process. But it, it crashes slowly. So if you start to crash in, in Creo, you don't know for a while. Oh and then it, yeah, it's one of those, the save early, save often. <laughs> anyway, but yeah, so I'm really excited. Tomorrow I'm going. I I, I finished the design process. I, I I have to just kind of lay it out. I just want to do a drawing on it, just so because it's for me. You know, when you're when you're actually working with cutting the wood and everything else, it's nice to have the drawing right there to kind of guide me rather than have a laptop sitting there getting sawdust the on it. So I suppose I could use a tablet, but I don't want to do that. Not that I think that I could use a tablet because there's a Fusion 360 app that can tie in and everything too, but going to print Well, it out.
1: but I assume unless you're making <laughs> adjustments as you go, you really, that's kind of overkill.
0: It is. It would be overkill.
1: I mean, sure, it would be
0: so, cooler. <laughs> kind of cool, yeah. Way cooler. <laughs> is that a piece of paper? So, actually, I'm, I'm going to look into that now, now that I've, <laughs> now that I've just said that, because uh, I'm, I'm going to see if that actually might be a better way to go. So, we'll see how that goes. Could be a total fail, but, you know, at least I tried. And then you'll know. So, Eric. What have you been up to?
1: Well, I actually took a bit of a break from desktop Linux over the last week or so and um looked into some of the pros and cons of virtual machines, virtual environments, containers. So I was looking at uh, LXD in particular. It's just not something I've spent much time with. That's a pretty common the the, ver- the idea of a virtual environment is a is a pretty common thing, particularly in like web hosting. Just not something I'd done personally on my own system so I did a bunch of testing with that and I've been using things like containers like docker and things like that for a while it's it's interesting because I think with anything you you learn as much as you need to so of the practicality of the knowledge that you acquire like how deep do I have to go it's just fun sometimes to go beyond what you already know i took the example of of just building a local web instance on something and it's I usually use a virtual machine and just have multiple virtual machines for different things I do. Then I thought, well, let's see what the LXD or you know, virtual environments, how that might work. The thing with a virtual machine is it's it's kind of a, a predetermined entity where you give it a certain amount of processor cores and memory, disk space.
0: Yeah, that's what I'm I'm most familiar with are, are virtual machines. You're generally using like KVM, QEMU, whatever. So I understand that one. And I've only played around with Docker, and so I, I kind of understand that one. It seems like a it's like a self-contained, like but not a full environment, but just kind of a, a little bit of a, a slice of a computer, I guess. I, I really know how to define that, actually.
1: Virtual machines, I think everybody's pretty comfortable with that concept at this point. It's just literally a virtualized piece of hardware, for lack of a better way to say it, because it's, you're determining the... Amount of resources that it gets. And then those resources are tied to that machine and it doesn't necessarily scale. And I'm talking about like desktop grade stuff here. I mean, there's virtualization that is way more advanced. And the difference then with something like a virtual environment is like LXD, unless you set a limit, it can just use the resources of your system. So for example, if you spin up a virtual environment, and you don't limit it it sees all of the resources of your system so you know if i have 16 gigs of memory theoretically it could use all 16 gigs of it if it needed to
0: it sees what's available so it wouldn't just gobble it up or how, how does that work
1: well your your operating system is still going to control ultimately the the hardware resources so there's still a layer it's it's, it's abstracted up into the virtual environment but it's it's kind of interesting so my thought process was instead of having to be rigid about a virtual machine and predetermining these things that if it could be more dynamic and use less resources when it doesn't need them. And that that's kind of the advantage of a virtual environment is that you can have a lot of them running because at any given time, they're not going to be using as much resources as, let's say, you know, if you have, let's say, 16 gigs of RAM or 8 gigs of RAM and each virtual machine has one or two gigs of memory. Obviously, you can only run a few of them before you start running out of memory. A virtual environment will use as much memory as it needs, so you could theoretically have a dozen of them running. You're not setting and saying, like, when this thing starts, it just automatically gets allocated two gigs of of RAM. It just starts and whatever RAM it needs, it takes. And you can limit that so that it doesn't overstep and that you don't run out of resources, but you know, it's not using more than it needs at any given time. So therefore, in terms of like scalability or let's say uh, it it works better than a virtual machine, which is why something like shared web hosting where they might have, you know, a lot of different virtual environments on a piece of hardware and then limit that to the amount of memory it can take.
0: So what what is the delineation between a virtual environment and a container? Because to me, a virtual environment sounds like a container.
1: So the difference is a virtual environment is still a virtualized operating system. So it's it's still, you know, it's still an instance of something, Ubuntu, you know, Fedora, Red Hat, SUSE, or whatever. It's, it still has an underlying full system, if you will. Okay. Whereas something like Docker has a virtualization layer and the layer itself, the, the Docker, the uh, container engine manages all of that part of it. And the container itself can be literally just the thing. So if it's a, a web server, if it's a database server, if it's, you know, whatever that thing is, that's it, just that container. So it's usually a single purpose container. Normally in practice, what you see is that it's one container per function or software. Right. Okay. Versus an, a virtual environment where it is virtualized in a different way, but it's still, I'm, I'm butchering this and I apologize for it. For anyone who knows all the proper terminology, that's kind of the, the major difference. So Dockers are, are a little cleaner in that sense. Uh, Docker containers are a little cleaner, but they're also much more ethereal, meaning that the intent is that you spin it up, you pass it some parameters, you can attach storage, you can attach network, you can um, make it so that they can communicate with each other. But it's very much self-contained and also you know you can literally just destroy it versus something like a virtual environment you've got everything set up in one container i guess for lack of a better way to say it those things are part of a larger whole. versus docker containers which they themselves are just pieces and you can pull and push those pieces in and out as needed uh, take it down spin it back up the beauty of that is there's very little overhead in doing that so if you need a new apache web server You literally just spin up a container for it, pass it, whatever parameters you need. And it's just there versus a a virtual environment. you, You know, you're probably limited to that one instance of that piece of software versus Docker. I can have 20 of the same thing running because they're completely contained. And then I can choose how I hook them together and how they interact. I don't know if I'm doing a good job of explaining this or not.
0: That makes sense. I, there's there's a couple of Docker things that I've gone so far as download them and then run them, and then that was it. There's two things that, that I want to play with Docker-wise. One is the uh, home automation, my home assistant. I don't know if you're familiar with that at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I have some equipment that I'm going to be pulling out of Mothballs and re-implementing here fairly soon as well. And and so there was a Docker image for that rather than try and compile it or whatever or run on a Raspberry Pi or rather just run on a Docker image on my server. The other one being Jellyfin, so I've I've been we've mm-hmm. talked about Jellyfin before, and I I still have failed to actually run it. So um, it's bad on me. But that's another one, another Docker image that I that I want to uh, you know spin up. But the uh the thing that I don't know is yet I, they don't need to interact with anything other than can I point them to like a folder on the on the host system? Usually, when you're getting
1: an image like when you download something like Nextcloud, it's pre-configured to operate properly. So your question about access to storage or stuff like that, like that's just baked into it because it would make no sense to run it and have it run one time. You do all the configuration and then when you shut it off, (laughs) it just forgets all of that.
0: Gotcha. Well, if I have questions when I start doing some things, I'm just going to, you know, bother you.
1: Bother away. (laughs) Anytime someone asks me a question, I usually end up learning something because I I have this sense of confidence that yeah I know how to do that, and then if I need to explain something to someone else, all of a sudden it's like oh, it gives me an opportunity to improve.
0: Well, that's very that's that's some neat stuff that you're doing. The virtual environments and the doc containers are, are a lot of my experience range, but I, I got the virtual machine piece, so it's it's neat. There's there's just so much to learn. It seems like you know when it, when I think I kind of got the virtual machine thing understood, then people are throwing these containers and virtual environments at me. I'm like whoa, what is this? What is this that you're talking about? These these uh yeah, abstract concepts.
1: <laughs> well, and that's what I was alluding to with being sort of an old dog when it comes to this, because my mind is still fixed in that that old machine-based world. If you have that foundational information, I think it helps. But ultimately, it, it is a different skill set, different way to think about it. It felt good to dig into something and really dig deep and, and get a chance to focus on it. Time well spent. I certainly enjoyed doing it. Hopefully, I can apply some of what I learned to uh, to my life and my business and make things better and easier.
0: And it's nice for me to have an expert in my back pocket of sorts.
1: <laughs> so we got some listener feedback, which we absolutely love getting. Uh, I got an email from that computer kid. He sent me a message about Endeavor OS when we were talking about it recently, and I had made the made the statement something to the effect of it was just an easy way to install Arch. And um, his message to me was, I would like to disagree with you guys saying that Endeavor is a good way to install Arch. Endeavor OS is not a way to install Arch. You might as well say that Ubuntu is a good way to install Debian. Arch Linux install is an experience, not a rite of passage or eliteness, though. While Endeavor OS is a great operating system powered by Arch, it isn't Arch. Again, consider the Ubuntu equals Debian analogy. Endeavor be Endeavor and Arch be Arch. So (laughs) I I was pretty intrigued by that. I thought, okay, what am I missing? Because I'm thinking of it as a very sort of from a technical perspective of Endeavor is very much based on Arch. You know, when I think of something like Manjaro, um, they have their own repositories, their own release cadence. They make a lot of changes to packages. They're based on Arch, but they're very much their own thing. So my reply to him was essentially that, and I won't read it verbatim, but I, I essentially said that where, yes, Endeavor OS is not just installing Arch, but I looked at an install of Cinnamon on Endeavor just to check this. And there is an Endeavor OS repo uh, that had been through GitHub and now they have their own. As of the April release, they also have the option of a private repo. But I could only find 12 packages that it installs. And so you're talking a system of thousands of packages and almost all of them, I mean, well over 95%, I would say, are coming from the Arch repos or the AUR. And so to me... I mean, outside of those twelve packages, yes, maybe there's a couple configuration files or, you know, the mirror list. There's probably some things that obviously are being changed by Endeavor OS, but very, very little compared to the over the totality of the system. And that's basically what I communicated back and just said, like, (laughs) I'm really, I'm not trying to be defensive here. I just, I think I'm missing your point. And uh, and he got back and said that really what he was talking about is the the learning experience that you get from installing arch having to put the thought into your system and you know what disks do i have what what's appropriate for my system what type of bootloader do i need uh, i mean all of the the detail and minutia that you have to understand when you install arch and so that was really his point was there's a benefit in doing that and understanding your system and so learning about your hardware specifically, but then also the technical exercise of sort of learning some of the ins and outs of Linux itself, you know, bootloaders and file systems, and sort of how all of these pieces fit together, and that's absolutely valid, and I I get that. But it again, I thought it was much more of like he was saying technically that Endeavor was not Arch, where he was saying the the experience of installing Endeavor was not the experience of installing Arch which I completely agree with. And, you know, we went back and forth about five times and it was a great discussion. I'm really glad that he wrote in, uh, wrote to me and and we talked about this. And eventually my answer back to him was, I get all that and I'm lazy (laughs) to me. (laughs) And uh, Endeavor's great because I can just boot into a live environment, pick the desktop I want, partition my disks, and just get on with my life. And there's still a considerable amount of customization that has to happen after that. So unlike something like Banjaro, where they do a lot of the system configuration for you in terms of just, you know, all the behind the scenes things that you normally have to do with Arch, Manjaro is doing a large percentage, if not most of that. Versus, yeah, Endeavor does configure some things. They let you they give you ways to set your mirror list and install drivers and some things like that. But ultimately I find that Endeavor, I still have a lot of work to do to set everything up the way I want it to be. Like I'm willing to do all of that. It's the install part that I just, I don't have the patience, honestly. And yeah, I don't know if right. that's laziness or, or what.
0: So, you know, looking at the emails, I I was trying to understand because my understanding of arch is not the process by which you install a system but arch being the system that you're running because yeah, to me i want to get the install done with as quickly as possible then i can rep out any pieces that i want so if if i were to install arch i would go the endeavor way because i don't really want to have to te- go through the, the tedious process of setting it all up i mean i guess there there is something to be setting up some people they they set up their arch systems and actually have their own script that actually pulls everything down and does it for them. But then I would question then that must not be arch because you have a script. So that script is, you know, whatever you call yourself, I suppose, well, not no, based Endeavor on OS. his
1: logic. Yeah. I mean, based on his logic, yeah, that's, I would agree
0: that's with that. I, right. So that wouldn't be arch. If you create your own script, that would be cubicle NATO S if I built my own arch script, which would be a terrible OS and probably inconsistent and, you know, not show up, not want to show up for work sometimes. But anyway, I, I understand his point. But to me, Arch is the the core system that's running. But that I guess, in a way, maybe he's saying Arch is a very personal thing as opposed to a a general thing. It says uh, Arch could be is is whatever you make of it. You know, Arch is your is a personal expression of how you want to run a Linux system. I suppose
1: he has a very valid point. If you don't understand the fundamentals of Linux, I, I think it's a great way. Yeah, you're not going to learn everything, but you're you're going to learn a bunch about. If you install something and it's a systemd service, Arch isn't going to enable it and start it for you. You need to know that I need to (laughs) enable it and start it. You need to know how to do that. You don't need to know that if you run certain distributions and that's fine. That's what they're there for. But if you have an interest and you're trying to actually learn sysadmin or, or just learn, you know, how the system works, then that is a useful experience installation is really very much just setting the stage with something like arch where you've laid out, you know, what we were just talking about virtual machines. I mean, you've just kind of, you've given it the resources you've told it where to go. You've accounted for different pieces of hardware and how the environment needs to operate. If the video drivers like there, they are absolutely parts of that that are important to understand, but, Even with something like Endeavor OS doing that for you, after you get in there, to me, that's where all the opportunity lies in customizing your system. So all of the decisions that Ubuntu or Manjaro or any other, let's say, more packaged or predetermined distribution is going to do for you, Arch doesn't do that. And that's where it comes down to, if you want to print, you have to install CUPS. And if you want to, you know, every, everything you want to do with the system, you have to proactively make that choice versus other distributions where those choices have been made for you. And I would say that probably for most people, that's good because they don't have to spend the time doing that. But certainly there are lots of people who appreciate the fact that nothing is there and nothing is predetermined or decided for them, and it's up to them to take the steps to make the system work the way they want it to.
0: This episode of DLN Extend is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean offers the simplest, most developer-friendly cloud platform. It's optimized to make managing and scaling apps easy with an intuitive API, multiple storage options, integrated firewalls, load balancers, and so much more. You can get all that plus access to the world-class customer support for as low as five dollars per month, DigitalOcean also has two thousand cloud-agnostic tutorials to help you stay up to date with the latest open-source software, languages, and frameworks. Get started on DigitalOcean for two months free with a one hundred dollar credit by going to do.co/dln. Again, you can get started on DigitalOcean with that hundred dollar credit by going to do.co/dln. And we thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of DLN Extend.
1: And just as an aside, all of that part of discussing my week where I was looking at different servers, I did a lot of that on my local computer, but a lot of it, I I really needed a public IP, a public server so that I could test things. And no lie, I probably spun up and destroyed 15 different instances.
0: Wow! Yeah.
1: And the beauty of DigitalOcean is that it's really easy. I go to my control panel. I say new instance, and in some cases, in most cases, it was just a plain server of something. It was either Ubuntu or CentOS, and in some cases, they have the images that are already there. So for certain things, it's pre-configured, and you just spin it up, and it's already pre-installed for you. It made it very easy for me, and it, you know, I go back to that that old dog mentality of having to do everything yourself, and the amount of time it takes to To set up a new server, the speed at which you can do it on DigitalOcean is, it makes life so easy to just test things. I would leave it run for for a few hours and test what I needed to test and then just destroy it. And it may have cost me a few cents. It is a really amazing tool for learning how to do these things. Let's say uh, you're just trying to learn how to set these things up and we talk about the tutorials. It's a great experience to go through spin up the server, go and look at the first steps document, kind of run through that. And then, you know, maybe the tutorial for setting up a web server or whatever it is you're setting up. Most likely there's a a, a tutorial for it. You run through it. If you mess it up, (laughs) I was installing a Jitsi server a couple weeks back just to play around with it and uh, realized after I had set some things up that I... Kind of flubbed a few things and rather than taking the time to fix it, which would have taken probably a half an hour, an hour, I realized, well, it only took me 10 minutes to spin it up and get it to this point. So I'll just destroy it and start again. (laughs) That's really amazing to be able to do that. So that's just one of the ways that I use DigitalOcean. I used it quite a lot this week and it was a great resource for me. That's awesome. In our DLN community focus for this week, there was a post that Ryan actually put in the jobs board. There's a jobs board section of the discourse forum. And he started off with the premise of, if you're interested in becoming a programmer, he had found a site that listed the most popular programming languages. So if you really didn't have an idea of what you were interested in, but just the idea of learning software development, What should be your focus in terms of the widest distribution or let's say the most highly sought after skill set, you know, languages? And there was some discussion about that. There was an alternate site brought up. And then, you know, the idea of, well, maybe some of this is a popularity contest. And are these really the most popular languages? That was all interesting discussion. But then it kind of led into how do I actually go about this? Right. Okay. Here are the maybe the list whether or not we can claim that it's entirely accurate, but here's a list of popular languages. Great. Where do I go from there? And I actually chimed in and asked about my experience, which has been I have a general interest in software development. I am proficient in a few languages in terms of being able to debug code and make very simple changes, but in terms of actually developing something, I am not a developer. I've never really had the application. And I think that's what it comes down to is I have the aptitude and I have the interest, but I don't have the outlet. And so I don't have a place to take this knowledge if I take the time to learn it. And I've been through so many different you know, tutorials and courses and they're interesting as I do them. And then I get through and inevitably at the end, you create some project and I get through that and, and I even riff on it a little bit and, come up with my own ways of doing things and make sure I really understand it. But then I end up at the end of it, not having a place to go with that knowledge. And then if I don't use it within a month or two, that's it. It's gone. And if you don't put something into practice, then it's like learning five chords on the guitar and saying, you know how to play the guitar. Like you don't know.
0: (laughs) Yeah. You know, five chords.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And, and and so my question came down to, okay, this, that's always been my problem. Like how, how do I get past that? And is this the type of thing where instead of trying to learn this from the ground up and all the theory, should I find something like maybe an open source project that's written in a language that I'm interested in and then actually get in there and try to solve a problem or, you know, work on something that already exists so that I'm I'm looking at someone else's code and and needing to, okay, I see this line here. I don't know what that means or what it does. Go and research and say, okay, wh- how does this work? What is this doing? How does it fit into the larger whole? I just I really wanted to call attention to the fact that uh, Eric Londo, who's uh, who's behind Linux Plus Plus, and we're gonna talk about him in a, in a few minutes. But uh, he wrote back just an excellent response to that question and uh, and did say that yes that is a really great way to do it because if you jump into a project you have a couple of things going for you at that point one is like i said it's existing code and you are looking at very specific things in that code and then trying to interpret and understand how it fits into the larger whole and um and and so you're not just starting with you know the beginnings of a program you're actually needing to jump in and learn a larger context and more complex things right away which i think would be would hold my interest a little more and if i thought at the end of that i was actually able to contribute something then i would probably find that more rewarding than just doing yet another task manager (laughs) application or or hello world Mm -hmm. or something like that and uh and so he he uh he said that is a good idea uh, the other benefit would be having people who know what they're doing, review the code that you submit and be able to give you feedback and correct you, um, so that you're not just working in isolation and maybe forming bad habits. It's a fantastic response. It is a page and a half long in true Eric Londo style. And, uh, and I mean that in the best possible sense. He, um, uh, to put a lot of thought into this and uh i'm gonna link to this in the show notes just so folks can see it but if you're in the situation that i've been where you have an interest and have maybe even gone through a couple of different tutorials courses whatever you want to call them and uh came out the other side kind of not sure where to go i think this is a, a great explanation of maybe how to get past that that trap that i keep falling into
0: i responded to that on the uh on the form as well, because he made, a, he made a statement about Python specifically that stuck out to me. And I, and I think maybe I took it, I didn't fully understand maybe what he was saying, but he said that, you know, Python is pretty close to English and it can be used for basically anything these days, though in practice it probably shouldn't be. And that kind of like made me like, oh, huh, because my employer, uh, they do a lot of, as he put it, like pet projects or like the, they do design concepts using Python because it's quick and they can test something and then they can optimize the code later. So I, I guess that, that makes sense why he would say maybe in practice it shouldn't be but it was a really good response though because it's you know python is an interpreted language as opposed to a you know more of a lower level or you know more of a direct language like c compiled language so although I, I did read there are compilers for python
1: so i think because python python is so accessible people have done things with it and and you're right i think if you're prototyping if you are testing a concept if you are Um, you know, if you have team members that are proficient in Python and then maybe it's a certain skill set of other developers to, you know, to work in those, those more, let's say applied or complex or, you know, however you want to say that I'm not trying to belittle Python by any stretch of the imagination, but it's, it's extensible. And I think that's what he's kind of talking about is you can do so much with it, um, and maybe leads people into putting it into production in a way that it maybe isn't the best application of that. You know, you've right. gone beyond the uh, the prototyping and the, and now you're, you know, like you said, maybe now it's time. Like this is a this is something we're going to pursue in a in a long term way. That maybe Python isn't the best language for that. But again, I don't know. I think this might help me get past that. I really appreciate him taking the time. To uh, and not just him, there were a lot of people in there uh, putting in great input, and uh, and that's what's great about the the <laughs> the discourse forum. I know we at least once a show uh, go off on a tangent about how great the discourse forum is, but there really are some pretty amazing uh, people contributing in there who just but uh, amazing backgrounds and skill sets. And you know, you start talking about development, all of a sudden, all these people come out of the woodwork, and it's like the, <laughs> to see the list of languages that some of these people know and it's i I mean i guess it's the type of thing that once you understand the fundamental concepts that you know you you can adapt the at least the thought process to a different language but to see like (laughs) some of these people know 15 different programming languages and you think man that's what what an amazing body of work or or feet to have you know gone that deep into software development where you can can look at so many different things because most of the time i look at code and it's like hmm yep that's some that's some <laughs> uh characters
0: on a page all right it's funny you say that because like i was uh i was helping my uh that wasn't much help at all my um my brother-in-law is, is working on stuff for uh in powershell and i'm like that's powershell i don't I've never even seen PowerShell, but I mean, you can kind of make out, you know, what's going on there, but I I don't know what any of those arrays were and what they meant, so I, I couldn't, I couldn't actually help him, but he thought I could. And you just
1: heard me mention Linux++, plus I'm not sure if we actually, I think I may have announced it when we talked about front page Linux, but. Uh, Linux plus uh, plus Eric Londo had started that on medium. Mike and I had, had talked to him and said, you know we're we're working on a on a news site, well, not not just news, but a, a, you know a a site focused on written content. and uh, would you be interested in uh, you know contributing there? Is there some reason that you're tied to medium? I'm not trying to speak for him, but he basically said, well, it was the it was the one that was most accessible to me and it just fit my needs. And so that's what I did. So we've helped him transition over to, to front page Linux and he's been publishing on there. It's fantastic content. There's so much to go through. And normally I do not go for long form written content because I've become lazy in some respects where I like to look for a video. (laughs) I do. I mean, I, I, there's something about video that is it's, there's that sort of, usually some sort of personality behind it and you can kind of for better, for worse, you kind of judge the person and and have a sense of like their mastery of something. And not that you can't do that with the written word, but um, there's just something that's much more uh, immediate about that. But anyway, when he started first publishing, I mean, I think from the first edition he put out, I had seen it on Twitter and uh, was immediately interested and it's just it's great content he he's able to write and be concise yet not have it be very dry like he he introduces a you know personal opinion but it's all wrapped in you know in fact a lot of the things he's covering are things that lots of people are covering but the way he does it and the the way he frames it and the way he's giving all of the background information i really like that because he doesn't just say okay, you know, there's a new release of Ubuntu and here's the 10 new things that are in there and here you go. Like, he actually gives a lot of, like, frames it. He he frames it and says, not everybody in the world knows what Ubuntu is, so maybe we should give a little bit of context here. And it, it feels very much more journalistic than it does fanboyistic, which I know that's... Right. That's a <laughs>
0: that's a good term. <laughs> it, it is, fanboy-istic. but I'm... I'm uh,
1: Yeah. (laughs) Or maybe the opposite, someone who doesn't like something and they're they're criticizing it. Journalism in the sense that it's... it's,
0: They want to watch things burn.
1: Well, I guess impartial is the, it might be the wrong word, but it is complete in the sense that he's offering different viewpoints. Anyway, I really enjoy it. As you can obviously tell, I could sit here and (laughs) go on for way longer than I should. If you haven't checked out Linux++, you really should go take a look at it. It's it's good
0: stuff. In episode eight of Hardware Addicts, Wendy, Ryan, and Michael, and I put them in that order for a reason. So what they brought up was the uh, the latest of AMD mobile processors. Now these are low power yet powerful processors that are going into mobile devices, and they're they're talking about the the power consumption is so much less than that of the Intel counterparts. And they kept talking, you know, AMD versus Intel. And then it was also the talk of a, of an AMD CPU with an NVIDIA GPU. And I wouldn't be interested in that at all. But what I thought was interesting, and what didn't seem like the real story there, and I don't have any hard numbers, I couldn't find any hard numbers on, on actual power consumption or the amount of work done, but it's looking like AMD's new mobile processors are going to be competing against arm as far as compute power per watt consumed i wish they may have gone down that lot, that road and maybe there's not enough data out there to really start discussing this but you now everyone's talking about arm in the server room or arm devices everywhere but if amd is developing chips that are th- are truly this low in in power consumption i think there might be a this might have changed the landscape again for for some of these low power devices and I, I don't know what you know what your thoughts are on arm but my criticism of arm has been there's so many different arm platforms you can't really target arm It's like which arm pine 64 raspberry pi or is it raspberry pi 3 and below or raspberry pi 4 there's all these different architectures in arm which i think you know hurts it quite a bit and, and to me makes it frustrating to can you buy into this board or are you going to have going to lose support you know how long is that support going to be for a board but with you know x86 architecture You pretty much have a, I don't know, 10, 15 year lifespan really that, that, uh, that it can be targeted. So to me, maybe some single board AMD computers coming out in the future that are higher power, like higher compute power, that might be something that that might be accessible to, to a lot of people. You know, for me, like I, I'd rather run a, an edge device on a low power AMD as opposed to an arm, because then I know that I can, I can get support for, you know, for the long term on it for the life of the, of the product pretty much. I don't know if you'd heard that or if you have any thoughts on that, but that, that I thought was, was what was really exciting me there.
1: When you talk about it conceptually, yeah. I mean, so what is the advantage of running an ARM-based system? Why are they becoming more popular today than, you know, let's say the the more higher-powered processor alternatives? And so if you look conceptually and you say, yes, power consumption, size, cost... Um, There's a lot of things that factor into that when you start pushing the TDPs and the power consumption and the heat output down to a a certain level on traditional x86 processors, then like all of a sudden you think, well, what is the advantage of ARM over that? And maybe cost will still be a factor. Although I saw that they just put out some sub hundred dollar, you know, I guess a line or a. A variant of what they're producing and they're going after that low cost segment. So all of a sudden, like you're saying, like, do you start seeing devices that without a thought would have been ARM-based because of those factors? Now, all of a sudden, do you say, well, uh, where's the advantage of doing that? And I agree with you. If it comes down to making the compromise between lower compute power because of the cost or the power consumption or the size or or whatever those factors are. And those those factors no longer hold true because you have an alternative that has the higher compute power, that has all of the same specifications in terms of power usage and heat output and size and cost. I am with you. Of course I would want something that's more capable. I think one of the biggest challenges for ARM has been the software compatibility, right? Everything's built for x86. And that's been sort of the story of the Pinebook and uh, and other devices is it's getting better and you're seeing a lot wider support and things are being, when they're developed, they're compiled into ARM64. I agree with you in terms of the lack of a standard, because if I buy an AMD or an Intel processor, I know it's going to be compatible there that anything that has that instruction set is going to, I mean, if it says it's x86 based, then I mean, it's going to, to varying degrees of efficacy perhaps,
0: but nothing that I have purchased in the last 15, 16 years does have an, have a compatibility issue. I mean, I think there were, there were issues probably in the nineties when, when architecture was kind of going through some more changes, but anymore x86 is x86. There's a certain, standard we don't have that with arm but arm is actually about as old i mean the acorn archimedes is that i think that that was the original arm processor computer that was released i mean, not the first but one of the one of the early computers so it's been around a long time but just doesn't have that same kind of consistency and, and to me that's frustrating
1: it, it is frustrating because i also agree like if i buy a rock pro or if i buy one of these systems, what is available? Like, what can I actually do with it? Part of that too is the the expectation, right? If I get a Raspberry Pi, I know that there are going to be limitations, but that's okay because the use case for that is probably going to be very limited in in what I expect it to do. I would never buy a desktop PC or a laptop that I would expect to have just wide compatibility with software and have to deal with that sort of limit. And, And I know... Again, people who are using the Pinebook and and similar systems, there is an expectation, well, unless you don't know any better, and then I guess you would be pretty disappointed. But there's an expectation that it has limits and that most people are okay with those limits because they, again, are making the choice to have very lightweight, low cost, reasonable performance with exceptional battery life, but obviously trading off compatibility because of it. So you've got ARM increasing its c- compute capability and also software developers focusing more on that platform. And so it's it's kind of from the bottom up being built up. And then on the other side of it, you've got x86 processors now becoming more and more efficient, but they're not slowing down. These lower wattage, lower TDP, I mean, yes, of course, it, it's not going to be as powerful as a, huge Ryzen or Threadripper system, but you know that. And the capabilities of each successive generation, even at these lower tier compute power, are still way more capable than any ARM-based system in terms of compatibility and compute power. Right, You've got the established processor architecture coming down to meet the use case that ARM was at and you've got arm coming up to try to meet the use case where existing architecture already lives. You, you, you see what I'm saying?
0: Yeah. It'll be interesting to see if, cause I, I think one of the examples of maybe arm gone wrong, maybe there's, maybe this is not fair to say, but the raspberry pi four, which one was released, got really hot and sure it could output 4k video or whatever, but not very well. The real issue is how hot it got and that's not going to work either. But if, you're still not getting the performance of you know, even a of a, a lower end Celeron mobile processor really. Yeah, I don't know. Like to me, to me I'm not I, I don't see in some ways I don't see the benefit in ARM getting to trying to get to desktop levels. It seems like they should just stay where they work best, you know, in a a mobile phone type application or a
1: or the very specific kit based systems, right? The advantage of a Raspberry Pi is it has the header on it that you can attach to all sorts of different hardware devices and you use it right. for, they're single purpose systems in a lot of ways, right? You know, I have a Pi series two that's running Pihole and I wouldn't dream of putting 10 different processes, you know, different services on that system. Why? They cost $30. Right. If I needed another one, I would just go get another one. I agree with you to some extent that there is this interest and push for these processors to be more than that. And I don't have a problem with that. Like I, I think the idea of a Pine book and compatibility and seeing things like Manjaro having a, a release for that and it has its place, but I feel like it's very limited. And if price and performance get to a point on traditional processor architectures, and like you said, if there's a choice between the ARM system or a much more capable processor architecture, then I'd have to have a very specific use case to choose ARM in that instance.
0: Well, I look at it this way. If I were buying, let's say, a single board computer that I <clears throat> a purpose in mind for, like let's say like an edge device or whatever, I would actually spend twice as much without feeling bad about it for an x86 architecture for similar or better computational capabilities just because it's x86, and I know I can my flexibility be so much greater.
1: But especially if you're saying, okay, you would pay twice as much. And if we're saying a 30 or $40 single board computer versus a, I don't know, sub $100 x86 system of comparable size and, yeah. If I could run five processes off of a single $80 system, anyway, maybe it's not fair. If you had a project that just needed a single board computer, it had the headers on it to hook up some type of hardware and this was the project you were undertaking and it was the right fit for that then yeah i mean why would you spend more on something that would be more capable but you don't need that capability so the i guess the use cases might be different and this is maybe just us projecting our <laughs> our kind of our idea of old what's, man no it's not even uh, necessarily old man off, it's on. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's more of a value proposition. If you just want to have an extra system sitting around with wide capability to do all sorts of different things, then maybe a single board computer isn't the best choice in that case, not knowing like exactly what you might want to use it for. I'm using that Pi now, but it literally sat in my closet for two years and I just, I didn't have a use for it. Because it was only good for those types of things. And I just didn't have any projects. Mm-hmm. If it were, you know, an Intel NUC or, or some, you know, x86 based system, like I probably would have figured out something to do with it because I could have done a lot of
0: things with it. I think the compelling story for me when it comes to ARM mostly is Pine right now because they do have those multiple offerings, you know, different, different form factors, but they're all, you know, compatible with one another. You know, the phone, the book, and the tablet. So that, that, that I think, changes the story, changes the narrative quite a bit. I did order a Pine phone, so I am looking forward to that. After I just trashed on ARM, I just bought a Pine phone, and I'm really excited about it. <laughs> so, uh, we'll see how that goes. Also, on Hardware Addicts, Ryan brought up, he uh, he got a USB audio device, and, and how it but it worked on multiple different operating systems without any kind of, you know, fussing around with it. And it, it interestingly or not, I've also been looking at some sort of a audio USB audio device as well. A little bit different than, than what he's been looking at, what he bought. And because I'm doing a little more with, you know, podcasts and, and I'm I'm dabbling in the YouTube sphere and, and so forth, and I have some other things noodling around in my head. I've been looking at different audio devices as well. And, and to me, what would be really compelling is one of these small, what, six-channel soundboards. I'm looking at one here on on, uh, on the webs right now. But it, it can output its sound as a digital audio device into your computer. So you could have all those different things that you need to be real-time in a separate device outside of the computer. Because we, we've talked about, like, pulse audio troubles and and setting up jack and, and the joys of that. And now there's pipe wire or something like that coming out here soon. So who knows what kind of problems that's going to bring, or maybe it'll solve all the problems. And this is a waste of time, but the idea of having an external device you know, that's USB that could handle all the mixing and, and whatever that you need and then have the computer just do the, re- be the recorder. And that to me is a, there's a compelling device as well. And have you looked at anything like that?
1: The short answer to your question is, Sometimes that can be the easiest way to isolate concerns and just be able to focus on, here's this device I'm going to plug in the USB. The great thing about a lot of this, and you have to be careful, you definitely want to read and figure out if it's compatible, but most things that I've seen or that I've tried, even ones that didn't claim to have Linux compatibility, the chipsets are, I guess, generic or universal enough that they just worked. And and these are even with not like the latest kernels. This is just, I guess, longstanding technology. So yeah, I think if you're having audio issues with your onboard audio, that a USB audio device could be a great way to, to get around that, ironically simplify the issue instead of <laughs> potentially, like you could imagine it being more complicated because when I look at the, the devices, the settings panel now of course i've got you know the onboard audio i've got you know the my usb mixer uh, which looks like a sound card because it has inputs and outputs and i have this usb device so i've got probably six of each (laughs) inputs and outputs so but at the end of the day it's just easier to have that one device and work with it
0: yeah i think to me what, what seems compelling to me is one knob to adjust for a compressor, and then you can actually see the output and effects, you know, immediately. I don't know. I see little things like that, like, ah, oh, that seems like a really handy way to do things, but could be more trouble than it's worth, I suppose. So we'd like to continue this discussion with you in any of our forums that we have Telegram, Discourse, Mumble, Discord, or, uh, or yeah, you can, you can dial up my digits, I suppose
1: carrier pigeon yeah
0: (laughs) smoke signals (laughs) Visit the dln website for information on how to connect to the social channels and also on shows and creators at destinationlinux.network for more information on where to find us uh for me you can go to the creator section of destinationlinux.network and click away or you can go to cubiclenate.com links to my regular things are there what about you eric Well, the
1: easiest thing for me, I think, is to just go to destinationlinux.network. Under the creator section, you'll find me there. Got links to all of my different social media, as well as YouTube and uh, front page Linux and all of that good stuff. Rather than me reading all that out, just go check that out. love to hear from you. So drop me a line. And as always, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We hope that you enjoy listening half as much as we enjoyed making this podcast. And we'll be back with another episode of DLN Extend. Until then,
0: see yous.